You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. I'll be reading today from Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good evening. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're visiting with us this evening, we're so glad that you joined us. Welcome. Um, we pray, if, particularly if you're hanging out with us for the very first time, that you've been encouraged uh, so far and will continue to be in our time together. Hey, before we jump into our passage this evening, uh, I want to take a moment to uh, pray together about something uh, in particular that's happening in our world. Um, you know, sometimes things are happening outside in culture, and we don't talk about them at all here on, on a Sunday night. And uh, many times that's because really our focus should be in our time here together, uh, God and what he is doing and what he's doing in and through us. And uh, a lot of times that plays itself out even in the passages of scripture that we preach um, we don't always are, you know, we're not looking for ways to just constantly change the sermon schedule to, to, um, you know, address what's happening in, in society. But there are times that, uh, it is important to do so. And uh, I believe one of those times is this week. If you've been watching the news, you know that there is, uh, quite a situation happening over uh, in the uh, another part of the world with Russia and Ukraine. And uh, uh, it's kind of difficult to wade through what's happening there. But um, one of the things that I know that we as the church have been called to is to pray. And so though we may not 
know how we can specifically help or practically help, uh, one of the ways that we can uh, partner together is to agree in prayer. So I just want to take a moment. If you would, just join me. Bow your heads. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to be in this. Lord, we thank you that in every situation, every dark moment, you are active and working. Even when things seem at their bleakest, we trust in your sovereignty and strength. And we first want to pray for the people of Ukraine. The situation that they are facing is not a new one. Your word promises in Isaiah 26 that you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. We ask that the people of Ukraine may be safe and secure and that they would know not only the peace of earth, but your true and unwavering peace. We pray that you would work in the hearts of world leaders and diplomats and incline them towards the same thing, Lord, peace. We pray for those who are making decisions that affect so many. And we ask, God, that you would move their hearts to peace, that there would be an alternative to war, and that that could be found and that you would be honored in it. We lift up the members of the military folk who have been called up to, um, to do battle, to maybe be prepared for battle. God, we, we ask that you would protect them and that their hearts would be calm and that ultimately you would bring them safely to their homes. We also want to remember tonight, Lord, to lift up the many brothers and sisters doing your work in Ukraine for the Christians there. We ask for their protection and that they may be able to freely continue serving you and the people around them. And we recognize even in a country like Russia, the people of Russia may not agree with what their government is doing. And we ask for the Christians in Russia as well, Lord, for their protection, that they will be able to continue to serve you. And as it has in so many other times and places, may this time of unrest and even persecution serve to ignite the gospel in ways that we could never imagine. We know that you can do more than we ask or imagine. And it is in this confidence that we ask these things in your name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, in the summer of 2020, my family had the privilege of traveling uh, to Colorado. We went to the Steamboat Springs area for a little vacation. We actually uh, hung out in a little city just outside of Steamboat called um, Oak uh, Park, uh, or excuse me, Oak Creek, Colorado. And in Oak Creek, Colorado is Stagecoach uh, State Park. And that's where we stayed. It was stunning. It was beautiful. In the heart of this park, the state park, was something called Pinnacle Peak. There was a trail that sort of circumnavigated the, that, that peak, and there was like an additional fourth mile at the very top that took you to the summit of Pinnacle Peak. Now, Pinnacle Peak was not a mountain. It's not as tall as some of the other mountains around us, but it was a, a place where, at least at Stagecoach State Park, you could go up to the top and get a 360-degree view of the park. And so one day, myself and Cooper and Everett uh, trekked up this trail to the top of Pinnacle Peak. And uh, when we got up there, the, the view was just incredible. What, what you need to know is, uh, the day before that, myself and the four older kids got some bikes and rode around a trail around Stagecoach 
State Park. That was stunning. It was beautiful. I mean, on that level, everything that we saw was, was just uh, incredible. But there was something that was very different, something that changed when we got to the very top of this summit on Pinnacle Peak. You could see the entirety of the park. You could see parts of the Route National Forest. You could see parts of the White River National Forest. You could see Thorpe Mountain to the west. You could see Black Mill Mountain to the northeast. Like Stagecoach State Park was awesome at a street level, at a bike level. But when seen from the summit, everything was more glorious. Because see, it it was at the summit that what I thought was amazing became even more grand. Tonight we are continuing our series in the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters in a series we're calling Reign of Grace. And we began this trek up the mountain of Romans uh, back in September of last year. And we are journeying through this book. And it's going to take us a little while, probably a couple years. We're going to take some breaks in the midst of of it. But uh, it's going to take us a couple years to get through this. And, And we're doing that on purpose. We do not want to rush through one of the most, I think, helpful and important books that I think our church needs to walk through. And in many ways, I said this when we first started this series... The book of Romans typifies much of who we are, even though we've not walked through this book together. I hope that as we've walked through the first seven chapters, you've seen the ways in which we, the things we value, the things that we pursue as a church, find maybe many of their roots in the book of Romans. Tonight is no exception as we come to Romans 8. In many ways, I think that as we come to Romans 8, we're moving up onto the summit of the mountain of Romans. And as we do that tonight, I want to invite you to see two things. First is this, the absence of condemnation brings real freedom. The absence of condemnation brings real freedom. And second, being right with God must precede doing right for God. Doing, excuse me, being right with God precedes doing right for God. So if you have your Bibles... Or electronic devices, keep them open to Romans 8, beginning there in verse 1. And right off the bat, if you heard Nikki read this, you know Romans 8, 1 is probably one of the most well-known, most heard verses in all of the Scripture. Now, the problem with many times verses that we've heard over and over and over is that um, we may know intellectually what they mean, but we do not experience what they mean. And I would say Romans 8.1 is probably one of the most misexperienced verses of the entire scriptures as well. Now we've said that the word righteousness is the theme of the book of Romans. But you could also say as we come here to Romans 8.1 that we're actually coming to the foundation that's underneath God's gift of righteousness. And it's this, this foundation that Paul says boldly here, there is no condemnation if you're in Jesus. You could argue that this is really what the first seven chapters of Romans has been building to. Because look at the word there at the beginning of verse 8, or beginning of verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, that typically means that what follows 
is the implication of what has come before it. So Paul is saying that everything that we've talked about up to this point in Romans 1 through 7 has underneath it this reality. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, before we talk about what that means, there's a very important word in this sentence that we've got to grab first. And it's, it's just a small word, a three-letter word. It's the word now. And that word now is so important because it helps us see a monumental shift in what Paul is talking about is the reality for you if you were a Christian. It really hits at one of the big things that we've been trying to unpack in this great book. It's touching on the new creation identity that you and I struggle so much with. Look there, it's saying here that now is a moment in biblical history that has been ushered in that is changing everything. The preceding area was identified by the law. The preceding era was identified by death reigning over everything. But God's righteousness, righteousness now is revealed through the law. And it's laid bare the unrighteousness that is inside of us. We could say it this way. Condemnation is the implication of the law. That is the result of what the law means for you and I before Christ. We are condemned. So Paul is saying, though, now, if you're found in Jesus, there is now no condemnation. He is saying that there is something new. There is something special. There is something glorious going on inside of you. Now, we need to define what this word condemnation means, because that is what Paul is saying here, that there is none of in the life of the Christian. Now, the word in the original languages here means to judge someone as guilty and to submit them to punishment. To be condemned is to both be found guilty and to be sentenced. It means that before God, you and I are both guilty and we are doomed to eternal punishment. We are not neutral when it comes to God before Jesus. The law only makes that condition more clear. And this brings us to the beauty of verse 1. To say that there is now no condemnation in the life of a Christian means that there is no longer the charge of guilt or the penalty connected with that guilt against God. Our relationship with God has been so radically changed gloriously transformed that don't miss this we can now experience freedom where once we couldn't this is why i think we misexperience the verse like we know if you've been in the church you know intellectually like you can say okay i know that if i'm a christian there is no condemnation in me or over me but you and I experience condemnation all the time in our lives. Whether that's internal condemnation, we condemn ourselves, we feel condemnation coming at us from out the outside. But you and I rarely experience personally or spiritually the reality that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Friends, listen, there is... Because of what Paul is saying here, a new statement over you. 
You are now not guilty. You now have a new status and standing before God. No condemnation means that God has legally declared you to be free of guilt and punishment. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because your sins have been paid for by someone else. The ones that you deserve to die for, someone else stood in your place, died for your sins, and his name is Jesus. That's what it means to have no condemnation because you are in Christ. Don't miss this. Your record of sin has been exchanged for another record. You have been given a new relationship with the very God who was formerly against you. To say that there is no condemnation is to say that everything has changed. Listen, it means that the most important thing about you, how you relate to God, what your eternal destiny looks like, how you, um, how you would define your relationship to God has been fundamentally reoriented. Friends, this is why we are on the summit tonight. Because you are now able to look out at the landscape of your life and see things entirely differently than you would have at street level. Something has changed, but this is where the rub comes in. Many, many of us don't experience the change. We live with the mentality or the, we live spiritually even as old creation people. Where Paul is saying here, there is no condemnation. There is a radical shift that has happened in the life of the Christian and you are now different. Friends, the reality of Romans 8.1 is something that we have to get deep down into our souls. Or... We will live a life, and some of you are feeling this tonight. You have felt this in your walk with the Lord. You will experience frustration and even hopelessness in your spiritual walk. So here's the first thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. The absence of condemnation is what brings real freedom. What do you want in life? What are, what are you running after, and why are you running after those things? See, Romans 8.1 is the backdrop of what has come before it. Paul has gone out of his way leading up to this to remind us of our position before God. In short, Paul has pressed the idea that every one of us is actually far worse than we would want to admit. But here is what Paul is doing in Romans 8.1. Immediately he is saying, if you are in Christ simultaneously, yes, you are far worse than you would want to admit. But that also now in Christ, none of that can bring you into condemnation with God. Friends, that is staggering stuff. There's a place uh, in Luke 11 where Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. I don't know if you know this story, but if you remember, he says to his disciples, to his disciples who he's been walking with, these are Christian men, right? He says, if you then who are evil, says to the disciples, you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who Ask him. Think about this. 
He's talking to the people that he loves. He's talking to the people that he delights in, whom he's going to die for. And he says, you're evil, but I am unconditionally committed to you. I delight in you. I love you. Friends, right there, you have something that no one can give to you. Nothing horizontally in this world. Paul is saying that the essence of of Christianity over and against any philosophy in the world, any other religion in the world, is Romans 8.1. All other forms of thinking and believing just bring more bondage and more slavery, but only Christianity gives freedom. Or said another way, if you're a Christian, condemnation spiritually should be a foreign concept to you. It should be normal to you that you feel loved by God. It should be normal. It should be natural that you feel delighted in by God. It should be right. You should just, it should just be a natural part of, of your walk with the Lord that you know that God is committed to you. The gospel says that if you are in Christ, you are simultaneously sinful and absolutely loved. You say, Brad, that's crazy. That's contradictory. Let me show you how great this is. When we really get the way that the gospel keeps these two things in tension, you can begin to have the ability to do something that most of humanity struggles with. And here, here's one example of this. There's many things we could say, but one implication is that you now have the ability to finally be honest about your sin and gain freedom. Let me tell you what I mean. When you start to look into your heart, when you start to do business with the Lord, he is the spirit as a gift to you is going to reveal to you, convict you of sin. Trey talked about this last week. There is still for the Christian on the other side of salvation something in us called indwelling sin. And that's what we're fighting for a lifetime in sanctification. And I get it. Indwelling sin, the habitual stuff that that we just can't seem to get over, it can be really frustrating. When you start to do business with the Lord and you look in your heart, it can be really frustrating. For some of you, it can be really bleak. It can be really dark. It could be, be really, it could, you could experience a sense of hopelessness. But knowing that you are both more sinful than you want to believe, but at the same time more loved than you imagined, you don't have to deny or spin or repress these truths anymore. You can face up to them. You can repent of them and move in freedom and newness of life. And I believe what Paul is saying here that really the only way that you can do that is with this declaration that Jesus has over us saying, there is no more condemnation for you. Let's think of it this way. In in relationships with other people, many times... We may say or do things that we don't realize are hurtful towards the other person. And many times when confronted 
about that hurtfulness, what do we do? We try to justify it. We try to say, hey, you know, I was just being me. I was just being real. Or, or we might defend ourselves, or we may be look, you know, we may fight that, that, that really we were right in what we said. I wasn't trying to be hurtful. I was actually just saying something that was truthful. Whatever the case may be, in relationships, many times there are ways in which we hurt other people. One of the ways that the gospel frees us to own up to whatever part that we might have played in that is that we can look at the other person with integrity. And with, with confidence and humility say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? I'm sorry. Friends, the, the only way that we can truly do something like that in relationships is whenever we don't fear the condemnation that might come from apologizing. Right? One of the things that's really difficult in relationships is that um, we allow stress and anxiety and hurt to begin to, uh, we feel like we're like able to turn to unhealthy things, things that we, we should not be turning to. And another way that the gospel actually frees us to, to face up to that as well is that we can look at those things and confess those things to the people around us and say, I am actually substituting something here where God should be. And because there's no condemnation, we don't have to fear that God is going to be upset with us in that or that our community is going to be upset with us in that. It, it's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity for healing. It's a time for us to move forward in the gospel. But I think Paul is trying to say here that you and I can't do that if we believe that there actually will be condemnation on the other side of our confession. Paul is saying, no, look, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Own up. You're free. And the promise on the other side of that is that very thing. We actually get freed up. We experience peace. We experience joy. We experience freedom. The gospel gives you freedom to admit who you are when the information comes your way, typically by the Spirit, to see where you need to change, and the freedom to know yourself. All right, look with me if you would, beginning in verse 2. Paul continues to expand on this idea by explaining how it is possible that a person could have no condemnation over them. Let me just explain it quickly this way. There is a law holding every one of us hostage, and Paul calls it the law of sin and death. This is the law that condemns us. This is the law that, that damns us. But the glory of God's grace is that there is now a new law that has overtaken the old law and in a sense, as we'll see next week in verse 4, fulfills it. Paul calls this new law, look there in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life. Paul is saying that living under this new law is, don't miss this, done through the Holy Spirit. To be in Christ is to possess the benefits and the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is what sets us free. Now look with me, Wood, at verse 4. Here we find another glorious statement where Paul is attempting to build out our understanding of what it means to live under no condemnation. In fact, Paul is doing something very important for us here. He is directing our eyes and our heart upward. He wants to remind us that all of this that we've been just talking about 
is the work of God. Why? Again, Paul is recalling that salvation is the work from, uh, of God from beginning to end. And yes, we cooperate in this, but it is God who does the work of redemption. If we're not careful, we will somehow think that we play a part. We will think that somehow our works or our actions somehow contribute to our salvation. Paul is saying, no, I want you to remember this is the work of God. Look what he says. He says, for God has done. And then he lists some things here. Sent his son, right? Condemned sin. We're going to see some others here in just a moment. The stunning reality of verse 3 is that God moved to rescue sinful people who could not rescue themselves. If you want a gospel nutshell, if you want like the simplest gospel message in three words, here it is. This is what he's saying in verse 3. God saves sinners. There are four things that God does here in verse 3 that I want to look at quickly. First, it says that God sent his own son as the means of redemption. Here's what that means. God rescued people at a great personal cost to himself. John 3.16, many of us memorize that God uh, sent Jesus his only begotten son. Only? God had one son, Jesus, the God-man, and God gave up Jesus for you. Second, that son was sent in the form of, of human flesh, humanity, to be the sacrifice for humanity. That was the only way it could have been done. Someone had to come in, in the image of God and look like us and breathe and to live and live a perfect life like us to be the perfect sacrifice. Third, the Son was sent for sin. That's what it says. The, the Son of God became the sin offering in our place where we were condemned. And then lastly, God, through his sacrifice, condemned sin in the flesh. That means that sin was paid for, it was atoned, and it was purchased. And it is no coincidence, I love this, that Paul uses the word condemned here. God declares no condemnation over those in Christ because he poured out condemnation on his son Jesus in our place. Now what Paul is doing so brilliantly here is, again, helping us, I think, to see what real freedom, which is what we're all really looking for, looks like. See, what we usually do when we look inside our hearts is we see the brokenness and the darkness and we see the sin and we say, man, I have got to do better. We say, I have to be stronger. I have to exert more willpower. I have to measure up. I have to be better. Which is another way of saying, I have to live up to the law. Well, Paul is pointing out here that there is another way. Actually, not just another way, but the only way to really find real spiritual freedom. And here it is. When we begin to see that the only sin that we can defeat is forgiven sin. Let me just say that again. The only sin that we can defeat is forgiven sin. Here's the second thing I want to invite you to see this evening. Being right with God must precede doing right for God. Let me say it another way. The only sin that you can defeat in your daily walk, replace with righteousness, 
is a sin that already has been forgiven for Christ's sake. I say it this way because we, all, we are trying different ways to overcome bad habits and patterns and sin in our life that aren't based on Christ. And we may even change. We may, may be able to modify our behavior for a period of time. But when those changes occur in life without forgiveness from Jesus... The result is not God's righteousness. Here is the reality. It actually puffs up. It produces self-righteousness, which in God's eyes is no righteousness. Here's the point. Forgiveness for our sins through faith in Christ must precede and empower our battle against sin in our lives. Justification comes first and then it helps uphold sanctification in our lives. There is a necessary priority of pardon before power. Again, being right with God must precede doing right for God. Now, for some of you, it might sound like I'm being nitpicky here, talking about the order of things. Why does one thing need to come before the other? But think of it this way. Suppose that uh, you're on trial in a courtroom for a capital offense. And your life hangs in the balance. A guilty verdict for you will mean death, and a not guilty verdict will mean freedom. Now, suppose that the judge looks at you and says this. There are two ways that we can deal with this. I can acquit you right now decisively and release you so that you can go and live your life in freedom and joy. And that will show that you really are not a rebellious, crime-loving lawbreaker if you live that way, though you have been. Or I can postpone the trial and the verdict for a few years, assign you a parole officer to watch you all the time, and let you go out and prove yourself to the court by your life. And then we may have the trial after that and base the verdict on whether your behavior was satisfactory or not. Now, does the difference between those two options sound like nitpicking? Friends, this is the difference between getting the order right or not. In one case, you're free from condemnation and with gladness live a life that shows the wisdom and mercy of the one who judged you. But in the other case, you have the trial always hanging over your head. And the basis of that future verdict will be based on your own behavior and whether you've measured up. That is why the gospel of Jesus is good news. The gospel of Jesus says to you, you are not guilty. There is therefore now no condemnation. If you're in Jesus, your behavior is irrelevant. Rather, your trust in me is what brings that righteousness to you. And I will give you the righteousness that you haven't earned, you couldn't earn, because Jesus secured it for you. There is a needed precedence to justification before sanctification. If you're going to get victory over particular sins in your life, you have to have joyful confidence that those sins are forgiven. And I think that's where we struggle. We think we've went too far. We think we've gone farther than the Lord would run after us. And friends, it's just not true. The confidence of no condemnation, if that precedes the war against sin that you're in, the good news of the gospel is that you can experience transformation. 
It's the difference between fighting fearfully to get justified and fighting confidently because you are justified. It helps us fight our sin like a victor and not a victim. What Paul is saying here in the beginnings of of Romans 8 is that all of God's condemning wrath and all of his omnipotent opposition to us in our sin has been now replaced by the mercy and grace of Jesus. So if you are in Christ, all, and I mean all of God's action towards you now is mercy. The reign of grace is what God desires to to bring to you. He wants to be king in your life. He wants to reign with his grace in your life. It's not as though some days he's against you with his wrath while other days he's for you with love. I know it seems that way sometimes, but what Paul is reorienting us to here, even just in these first three verses of Romans 8, is that if we could believe these truths deep, deep down in our souls, that God is for us and not against us, oh, how differently we would live. What freedom we would experience, what joy we would have, what peace we would have. The question is, are you in Christ Jesus? If so, there is now and never will be condemnation. Friend, if you are a Christian here tonight, you are on the summit with the privilege now of looking at the landscape of your life. And that landscape now includes things like freedom and joy and peace. Are you on the summit? Let's pray together.